from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. You're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, begging neighbors for gumbo ingredients, chasing chickens, and singing old French songs are just a few Mardi Gras traditions in the state's rural areas. We learn more about the history of Cajun Mardi Gras, plus we hear about carnival history across state lines in Mobile, Alabama. But first... It's Lundi Gras, Fat Monday, the day before the carnival season's big finale. That means parties, balls, and of course, parades. It's also a time when the city's cultural history is on display. The Gulf States newsroom's Drew Hawkins tags along with one South Asian group to see how new traditions fit into old celebrations. It's the final dress rehearsal for the Crew de Bangra, a South Asian Mardi Gras dancing group of about 50 people. Inside a community center, the crew is getting ready, preparing costumes and putting on mendi, or traditional Indian henna tattoos. Think Bollywood meets Mardi Gras. They're also crafting handmade throws, which are basically small gifts. Traditionally, these are things like doubloons or beads. But co-founder Monica Don says they're putting their own spin on it. We're giving out things that are traditional and DIY, so bindis, uh, bangles, um, and then, like I mentioned, these cookbooks that we put together that are um, QR codes that have a link to our cookbooks, and then also some colonial facts, which everyone needs to know. (laughs) A crew, spelled K-R-E-W-E, is basically a social club. They get together throughout the year to work on costumes, put together parade floats. There are a ton of crews out there, each with their own theme and costumes, from dancing Marie Antoinette's and Princess Leia's to the more traditional groups with the classic Mardi Gras masks. The crew de Bangra was founded last year to, quote, put the masala in Mardi Gras. For Don, a South Asian Mardi Gras crew just made sense. It was a, quite a natural fit. You know, there's lots of bright colors and, you know, people are really excited. It's really, it's very normal in South Asian culture to dance, especially the kind of dance we're doing, which is Pongra. It's a northern Indian traditional dance um, and mixing it with some Bollywood songs, too. Don says there have been South Asians in New Orleans for a long time now. One crew member's family has been here for seven generations. So there was already a community here, um, and this was just kind of a way to bring it all together. Last year, Crew de Bangra marched in the Bohem Parade. It's a fun, artsy parade that's led by a green absinthe fairy. And they were blown away by the response they received. Here's Amitha Krishna. God, last year, the crowd went wild. We loved it. People enjoyed it so much. They enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed it. Like, we love dancing down the streets uh, in the French Quarter, and then the audience loved it too. And it was like so, it was just such a beautiful thing. It was such a beautiful moment for a lot of us. Bangra was such a hit that this year, they've been invited to march in three parades. So the crew is really focused on making sure everything looks perfect during rehearsal. They're marching around the community center through a quiet New Orleans neighborhood, practicing their dance moves and occasionally dodging traffic. The parade is in just a few days, and there are still a few kinks to work out. So for this one, we're standing still for when we stop like this, and then we turn, and then we're standing still for the chicken. New groups like Crew de Bangra really embody the spirit of Mardi Gras. Hundreds of years of tradition, and it's still evolving, changing to reflect the city and the people around it. It's become an incredibly diverse celebration in New Orleans. 
there's something for everybody. Arthur Hardy is one of the world's foremost Mardi Gras historians. You know, we talk about equity and inclusion and diversity. Well, Mardi Gras supplies all of that every year. And this particularly new South Asian crew is an example of that. And it's just, again, an example of how Mardi Gras belongs to the people. Come parade day, crew de Bangra is dressed to the nines. We're talking full makeup, gold jewelry, and classic Bollywood-style costumes. As the parade rolls through the streets of the French Quarter, it's clear that all that practice has paid off. The crowd is going wild and dancing right along with them. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Drew Hawkins. While elaborate parades and fancy balls might be synonymous with Mardi Gras in New Orleans or Baton Rouge, in more rural areas of the state, the holiday takes on its own unique traditions. Barry Anzale is Professor Emeritus of Francophone Studies and Center for Louisiana Studies Research Fellow at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. He joined us in 2022 to discuss Cajun Mardi Gras. Today, we give that conversation another listen. Well, the Mardi Gras season traditionally begins on Twelfth Night, Epiphany, a Christian holiday, 12 days after Christmas that marks when the three wise men visited the Christ child. How did this become the launch of the revelry we know today? Yeah, a lot of people uh, get caught up in an argument about, you know, a discussion about when was Mardi Gras first celebrated in Louisiana? Was it Mobile or New Orleans or some other? Well, more likely, the first Mardi Gras was celebrated uh, in what is now Louisiana by uh, uh, Iberville and Bienville and his men as they were coming down the uh, Mississippi to begin the foundation of Louisiana in 1699. They stopped. They noticed it was Mardi Gras because they were aware of the liturgical calendar. They knew when Christmas was and Easter was, so they knew when Mardi Gras was. And they stopped, allegedly, they stopped along the banks of the Mississippi River and, and drank all the booze they had on board and uh, got out and chased some women. What were the Mardi Gras celebrations like in those early days? You mentioned um, the explorers drinking, so we, we can go ahead and check. There, were, there was <laughs> drinking, but were there always parades and floats and costumes and throws? No, I mean, parades, in order to have a parade, you have to have an, something of an urban setting. So you had to wait until a city emerged, uh, at least minimally. Now, again, the reason why they did those things is because they had done them before in their European origins. Uh, there were two basic branches of the Mardi Gras in Europe. One was urban and the other was rural. One involved parade processions and parades going through the city streets. And the other was out in the country where processions of people, masked and costumed people, would go from house to house visiting, uh, expecting some sort of interaction or contribution from their neighbors and friends. Both of those branches got imported to Louisiana. We see the results of one of them in the urban parades we see in Lafayette and, and Baton Rouge and Homa and, and places like that, Lake Charles. The other branch we see out in the countryside here in South Louisiana and uh, also southeastern Louisiana which involved the, the, the procession of neighbors uh, going from house to house. And we've also seen them develop into more el elaborate um, things than they were in the beginning. You mentioned 
uh, what's happening in the cities. We see now there are uh, social organizations that are involved in the, the, the building of the floats, and, and there are balls that are a big part of that city uh, experience. And then in the rural areas, with the uh, horseback riding and the, the gathering of the, the goods to build a gumbo, there are now elaborate costumes and dances. And so I think it, it, I, from what you're telling me, it continues to evolve. Yeah. And, and, you know, getting back to the urban setting, there's there's on the one hand, the, you know, more organized parade tradition. And then there are the Indians, uh, the Mardi Gras Indians, who walk through the streets uh, performing and singing and dancing and uh, showing off their beautiful costumes. And, you know, so uh, we, we've talked about the European contribution to this. There, there's also an obvious West African contribution to this uh, culture in the music and the second line and the syncopated drumming and, and what the Mardi Gras Indians do. Uh, interestingly, uh, this must have been, you know, pretty widespread thing because the Creoles in Lafayette also do the same sort of thing. I remember as a kid, they would wander around the streets with uh, whips uh, decorated with crepe paper, and they were trying to catch people and get them to kneel down to ask for pardon, and they would, you know, ceremonially tap you. I've often said that uh, Mardi Gras looks like a, a really big touristic party, but at its essence, it really is intimate. You know, at least out here in the countryside, it's about people visiting their neighbors and going through what they consider their little worlds. You know, the worlds where they grew up, they went to school, they went to church, they went to dances, they courted, they, they helped people pick their crops. That was their world. And that's the same world that they roam through on Mardi Gras Day. Uh, collecting chickens and visiting with their neighbors. Uh, and, and it's a beautiful expression of community solidarity. We're speaking with Cajun folklorist Barry Ansele. And Barry, we already mentioned a little bit, touched on a little bit of the drink of Mardi Gras. Food, of course, and music are also big parts of the celebration. How has that evolved over the years? There are foods that are associated with Mardi Gras as well, among them king cakes, of course, and that's a humongous uh, part of the tradition. But out here in the countryside, the food that's more associated with Mardi Gras is a gumbo. Those people are going through the countryside collecting ingredients for a gumbo that they're going to make at the end of the day and have everybody come to eat. Again, it's this community solidarity, getting together, feeling together, uh, you know, renewing ties, especially after the long winter as we're about to have to go in farming again. Uh, it's a way of extracting a commitment from the whole community. Music varies just as the celebrations do, city versus rural, city versus country, what distinguishes one from the other? Well, uh, they, they, they all have their own uh, traditional songs. I mean, we've heard, you know, people listening obviously must have heard of Ico, 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 Ande, Giacomo Fino, Andande, or the second line stuff, uh, uh, you know, the Mardi Gras Indian songs like Meet, Meet the Boys on the Battlefront. Those were songs that were sung, that were associated with marching bands and groups of singers. Out here in the countryside, there were similarly songs that were that are sung as people are approaching houses and they're performed sometimes by musicians who also sing words, you know, lyrics, but also sometimes by the whole group as they're approaching the house, they sing a begging song. And there's some really interesting uh, aspects to this, by the way. Out here in the countryside, they're singing in French, right? And a typical line of this begging song is, 
uh, Le Mardi Gras, on vient, pas, on vient de loin, on vient de l'Angleterre. They're singing in French and claiming they come from England, hmm. which of course is, is a typical carnivalesque joke. They're singing in French and, and saying, no, no, we're from England. <laughs> and they also claim in the song, we're not evildoers, we're only beggars, we're only, we, we don't mean any harm, we, just, we only ask for a chicken or, or some onions or something to put in the gumbo. And uh, every community has its own version of that song. You know, in the last year, most of the Mardi Gras parades were canceled, but people still found a way to celebrate. House flows for births. Uh, many of the careers still rode. They had limited numbers, some of them because of COVID, but they still hopped on those horses. And it was really cold last year. You know, is yeah, this a sign that you think that one way or another, Mardi Gras, it's here to stay, it's going to go on? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's such a powerful expression of community identity and solidarity. You know, if you go back to um, the Mardi Gras in the year after Katrina in New Orleans, there's a wonderful documentary uh, called Tootie's Last Suit. They were interviewing people in the, you know, the various Indian crews. And uh, they had a number of people saying, we have to pull off a of Mardi Gras. It's, it's critical that we be able to put off a of Mardi Gras because it's who we are. And they were, there were, there's footage of people coming out of ruined houses in magnificent headdresses. And while that might seem incongruous, it was not. It was exactly what New Orleans as a community needed. New Orleans as a, as a community needed to know that it was going to survive. And one way they knew they were going to survive is if they could pull off any kind of Mardi Gras at all. I think we kind of see that happening with COVID. Some of the runs were canceled, but some of the others went on. And they incorporated COVID masking into their masking strategies, which is brilliant. Now, Barry, I know you've actually been out in the field during Mardi Gras recording the music of Mardi Gras. Can you set up for us uh, a, a couple of the, the, the songs that you've captured? The ones that we recorded as a part of our project, we went out to just about every community that has a Mardi Gras today. We went out to uh, every one of uh, just about every one of them that we could find, and we found some really amazing performances. Uh, in one, in the Basile Mardi Gras, the singer starts off the song by saying, uh, "The night, you know, uh, uh, the 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 road is long and the night is coming, and we have to move on. It's time to move, and because they, they have to go to the next house to get enough chickens." And it's a, it's a stunning performance of call and response between the lead singer and the whole chorus. And, and uh, in, in another version, we were in Gromare, and their song has to do with the dwindling bottle. Uh, and, and they get to the end, they get to the dregs, and they say, now, the, now, you, now even the dregs are gone. We have to uh, find another bottle. <clears throat> and at the, the, their song ends, the whole, the whole group sings this together. And the song ends by saying, you know, we're not so foolish as to move along without one more song, one more drink. Every song worth singing is worth toasting.
Barry, thank you so much for this quick course on Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras 101 by Dr. Barry Ansoulet. Thank you, Barry. All right. Thank you. Barry Ansoulet is Professor Emeritus of Francophone Studies and Center for Louisiana Studies Research Fellow at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Again, Barry, thank you. You're listening to Louisiana Considered from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. I'm Karen Henderson. It's officially carnival season, and while Mardi Gras is largely associated with Louisiana and, of course, New Orleans, It's Mobile, Alabama, that actually claims to be the birthplace of the holiday. That's right. In 1703, Mardi Gras was observed for the first time in the New World by French pioneers at 27 Mile Bluff, the first settlement of Mobile. While New Orleans is known to have hosted the first Mardi Gras this side of the Atlantic in 1699, back then the area was still a French colony. That gives Mobile, Alabama, the distinguished title of being the birthplace of the holiday on American soil. In 2023, our former host, Carl Lingle, spoke with Cart Blackwell, curator of the Mobile Carnival Museum. Today, we give that conversation an encore. What did the celebration look like at that time? In 1830, heading into 1831, New Year's Eve, a group of Mobilians, four men, because um, it started out as a guy's game, we're out on the water. And when four mobile men are out on the water then and now, there's a liquid. And his name was Jack Daniels. <laughs> they had a good time. And one of those four men, a gentleman named Michael Kraft, when he got back in off the water, he took a little nap in the door to a hardware store. We even know the name of the hardware store, Partridge Hardware. And when he woke up from his little rest. He was being taunted by some some teenagers, and he didn't miss a beat. He grabbed a cowbell and a rake and proclaimed himself the chief of the Cowbellian Dragon Society. And when he woke up the next morning, a little worse for the wear, he got his buddies together. And over the course of a year, that group, the Cowbellian Dragon Society in the 1830s, developed the template for American Carnival. Let's talk about some of the earlier crews and some of the traditions that have developed uh, through the years that um, that you can find at the museum. Mobile's carnival traditions are rich and varied, and we still have the story of over 80 area mystic societies, what New Orleanians call crews, and they really represent so much of our community. It's estimated that let that roughly 50% of our population, and that's a conservative number there, that estimate, are members of a mystic society. And we tell the stories of each of these and how they represent mysticism, how they tie into Mobile, how they fit into the art, the fun, the industry, and most importantly in Mobile, the family nature of Carnival. We have major works of art, such as the Strikers Goat. And the Strikers are the oldest active mystic society in the nation. They date from 1842. And there's this wonderful goat statue they commissioned from the in the 1870s. And it's the second largest piece of postbellum folk art in the nation. We do a series of change in thematic exhibits. We've looked at Carnival and Spirits. 
Carnival and Couture, Carnival and Cuisine. We currently have a show on Joe Kane, who's the most famous figure um, in Mobile Carnival history. He was among those individuals who brought Carnival back after the Civil War. And most importantly, to for our visitors from farther afield, to give them a taste through one organization, what mysticism, what crews are like here in Mobile. We're speaking now with Cart Blackwell, curator at the Mobile Carnival Museum. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about because at the the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, of course, photography comes along, and carnival has always been fascination for a lot of photographers. So you have a pretty nice collection, I understand. There, can you tell us a little bit about that? We have a wonderful collection of photographs, and they sub- fall into several categories: the the street or parade side of carnival. We have a wonderful collection of rotating photographs of that, and that's the most experiential and accessible part. Uh, we also have a grouping of photographs of, of carnival balls. So when you get all gussied up and dressed up, and with family and friends, and another section on the royal or court side, um, the regal side of carnival. With our changing exhibit series, we add aspects of like carnival and dining or carnival and fashion. And we also rely on private collections a good deal, just so you can get a sneak peek of special things that still remain in the hands of families that are gracious enough to loan it to us. And I'm sure you have plenty of artifacts other than just, of course, beads. There must be things that have come to you over are, the years. We are very well known for our textiles. The best known is Mobile Supreme Carnival Art Form, the train. Not Thomas on the track, but the trains that follow a monarch. And we have the world's largest collection of trains. And every single one is locally designed and made. And that's something we're very proud of in our textile division. Of course, we've got many costumes, things that are made locally and designed locally, but also things that are from international designers such as Chanel, Worth, etc. So we try to tell stories with our various um, artifacts. And we have float pieces, an actual float that you can hop up on. So we try to be very experiential. If you can't engage with it, we want you to see it in a video or look at the original um, photograph of the original garment. So we try to engage people on many levels. You know, one of the things I think that's wonderful about Carnival is every city puts its own unique take on it. What, uh, what's Mobile's unique take on Carnival? I think Mobile's unique take on Carnival is that it is very much a family affair. You you see all generations lining um, the barricades, riding up our parade routes. And that's the most special component of it, to see parents with children, grandparents. And we're very gracious to our visitors, but it's it's a local affair. And I think that that's something that people visiting uh, our city from other places during Carnival, that that is the most endearing component, that it is anchored in our community, which makes it very special, very safe, very engaging, and what keeps people here. And if they don't live here in Mobile anymore, it's going to draw them back. If the Mobilian has moved away, they might not come back for Christmas and New Year's or Fourth of July, but they'll come back for Mardi Cart Blackwell, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Carl, it's been fantastic being with y'all. That was Cart Blackwell, curator at the Mobile Carnival Museum. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. 
Thanks to our guest, Barry Ansoulet, Professor Emeritus of Francophone Studies at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and Cart Blackwell, curator of the Mobile Carnival Museum. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.